are some of you standing here who won't taste death, that you won't die until you see this, this power and this majesty and this glory that I have been talking about. Now, I do have to uh, talk about a little pet peeve of mine. There, you know that your chapters and verses weren't a part of the inspired bit of the of the scripture. Those were added later as an attempt to um, really provide manageable, readable chunks during the public scripture reading. And when they when the chapter divisions are uh, appropriately placed and show the, the conclusion of one thought and the commencement of another thought or the next part of an argument or the next part of a historical narrative, the chapter divisions can be quite helpful, except when they're not. Sometimes, uh, you know, there, there are, as you've seen in our scripture reading, sometimes there are chapters that are 15 verses. There are some in Genesis, and there's a couple in Luke that are 70-something verses. And Psalm 119 doesn't count because it was written as a, as, as a whole psalm. But the fact that, uh, that, that Jesus is talking about his glory and, and the power and the majesty that the Son of Man will, will have when he returns with his holy angels at, at, at chapter 8, verse 38, you read that, you turn the page, and you go to chapter 9, verse 1, and you might instinctively think, oh, it's a new chapter. This is a another thought. We are transitioning to a different scene. Well, no, this is, this is an example of where the chapter and verse um, uh, uh, phrasing or, or placements actually is a disservice because this is continuing the scene from the previous chapter. So he's talking about glory. He's talking about power. He's talking about the kingdom of God and when he's going to return. And then he gives this promise. Some of you who are standing here, there are some of you who hear my words and I'm talking to you right now. Some of you will not die until you see something of that power that I was just talking about. They will see it with their very eyes. You're not going to get a, a feeling that the power of the kingdom of heaven has come. You're not going to have a, a burning in your bosom or you're not going to feel it with your heart. You are going to see something glorious and powerful, something typical of the kingdom. You will see with your eyes. Before you die, I guarantee it. Now, what does this promise of glory mean here? There, there's five possible uh, interpretations. One is that he's talking about his resurrection as in, and his ascension. Another option is that he's referring to Pentecost and the growth of the church. I mean, with, with all those speaking in tongues and all those miracles that the apostles were doing, that, uh, that seems a lot like the power of the kingdom, the power and glory of the Son of Man when he returns. And other people have suggested the, uh, when the Roman legions smashed Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. Others have said, well, this is talking about the second coming. That's the context in which he was talking about in chapter 8, verse 38. Well, if it is the second coming, then whoever it is that's still, that is still going to be alive before they see it, they are pretty old by now. The fifth possibility is that the coming of power is going to be the transfiguration that we see in our text today. 
The transfiguration immediately follows this promise. And in fact, in all of the synoptics, in Matthew and in Luke, this this miracle, this display of glorious power immediately follows the same promise that he makes in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so I, I think it is obviously clear that that is the correct interpretation. So Jesus said, promises some of those who are standing near him. Remember, he is addressing the, the 12 disciples as well as some of the crowd. Some of them will see something of the power and glory of the kingdom of God before they die. That's the promise that he gives, the promise of glory. Well, let's go on to verses 2 and 3, and we'll see the fulfillment of the promise in in the presence of glory. Verses 2 and 3. And so just a short time later, all three synoptic gospels make it very clear. This wasn't uh, the promise that he made wasn't something that he gave at this one time at this one place, you know, over in that one place. And then sometime later, a couple months later, he does this. No, it's always a short number of days. Luke, Luke says eight days, but that's because he's counting uh, two partial days. Mark just counts the full days. So there's no discrepancy. Just a few number of days Jesus makes good on his promise of glory. He said, some of you will see it. Well, he takes some men up onto the mountain. He takes three, in fact, Peter, James, and John. Now, I can, I can feel you asking, why three? Well, if you remember, the law in Deuteronomy 19.15 says, a matter shall not be confirmed without the testimony of two, or better yet, three witnesses. And I, I'm sure that you can see from all of the... Um, all of the news headlines lately, just the sheer madness of what happens when an uncorroborated, unfounded accusation is allowed to fester. God said, I don't want unfounded accusations festering among my people. I don't, we don't, you are not to treat those things seriously. So there must be for a matter to be affirmed, for an accusation to be treated seriously, for a testimony to be valid. There needs to be a group of people who said, I saw that, I heard that, I witnessed that. Well, we have three, Peter and James and John. And if you look down at verse 9, for the time being, they're not to comment, they're not to report, they're not to share what they see, but after the resurrection, they are. So there is coming a time where they will need to report the things that they saw on this mountain. And the fact that there were three of them who saw the same thing and their witness and their testimony will match up with each other, will fulfill the requirements of the law for that matter to be established. Now, remember that, remember that law bit about the three witnesses being required because that's going to come up again before this message is over. Well, which mountain does Jesus, which as, as Mark says, a, a high mountain. Which, which high mountain does Jesus take the three disciples up on? Justin, could I get the first one? Traditional, the traditional view for many centuries is Mount Tabor. Is that, can everyone see that? Okay. Uh, the, this has been the traditional view, but there's a problem because where does the PowerPoint say Mount Tabor is located? 
southwest of the Sea of Galilee. Anybody remember where Jesus has been? Caesarea Philippi, the very northern border of Israel's territory. He is, Mount Tabor would be at least 35, 40 miles away. And and the fact that, you know, Mark says that's a high hill. You could, you could probably climb that in a half an hour, 20 minutes if you're Charlie. And then also it's very likely that, this, that Mount Tabor was occupied by a Roman garrison. Justin, go to the next one. A scholar by the name of Robert Stein says, Mount Hermon is the only true high mountain in the, re- in the region around Caesarea Philippi, 9,100 feet above sea level 9100 and i think 8 feet above sea level now climbing a rock like that is going to give jesus and the three men the isolation uh the alone time that jesus is wanting to have with them notice in verse 2 it says he took them up by themselves jesus wants to be alone with with the men Well, hiking up there, you're not going to find a garrison up there. You're not going to find dwelling places up in that. And also, uh, hiking up that is going to give the, uh, it's going to be the basis for which the disciples are going to be utterly exhausted. Luke's account tells us that they fell asleep. So, spoiler, they fell asleep again. So, then, so the, in all likelihood, I mean, I'm not going to make a mountain out of a molehill. We don't know at the end. At the end of the day, we don't know which hill it is, but I think it's Mount Hermon. Uh, and then, in what has got to be the most theologically profound, theologically rich sentence in the entirety of the Bible, or at least in the running, and yet at the same time, the most grammatically sim- simple and lacking of details. Mark finishes verse two, and he was transfigured. I mean, there, his, he, Mark even uses the aorist tense. You, you remember, I bring up the, the imperfect, you know, uh, an action that was going on and on and on again. The aorist has no concern about how it was going on or when it started or, or when it stopped. The aorist tense is just a, it's just a fast, easy, simple way to say this thing happened. He was, he was transfigured. Just like that. No, no. Um, no details, no modifiers, no no adjectives, adverbs, nothing. You remember that sentence back with the with the woman with the twelve year old hemorrhage and how there's like seven clauses that identified uh, that that helped color in that picture of her misery. Mark likes to paint a vivid picture, and he here he just says it was transfigured, just like that. This word means. Uh, to transform or to change. It's the word literally metamorpho, which you can tell what English word that, that has become, meta, metamorphosis. It means to transform, to change one's form, to change one's appearance. And here Mark uses this word to say something about Jesus changed. And it's his appearance. As I, as I intimate, Mark doesn't give us many uh, details here, but he, he does give us one or two. He's, look at the following verse, verse, verse three, and his garments became radiant, 
and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. I don't know, maybe he had a, maybe he had a bad experience with a, with a launderer someday. He says that his clothes became radiant. His garments became radiant. This word means to be lit up, to shine, to, to cast rays of light out in many directions. Imagine like a disco ball. That's what Jesus' cloak and his vest and his tunic and his sandals are doing. These aren't normal clothes anymore. These are clothes that look as if they have searchlights and spotlights hemmed into them. They are bursting forth with light. How, how bright are they? They are not just white. Mark says they are exceedingly white. As, as one commentator puts it, they are white, white, white. That is very white. How white are they? More white than any launderer on earth can get them. Uh, Who were the launderers? These are people who cleaned clothes and fabrics for a living. There there were crude crude techniques that you could get dirty clothes and fabrics only oh so clean. Well, it didn't matter if you had a truckload of bleach and a whole boatload of that OxyClean stuff. No matter what you had, nothing you could do to could get your clothes to be as white as Jesus' clothes are in the blink of an eye. And that's, all, that's all Mark tells us. Matthew helps us out a little bit. He's, Matthew adds in his parallel account, Matthew 16, that his face shone like the sun. And that his garments became as white as light. I want you to compare these descriptions with Daniel 7.9. I'm gonna, I'll read it for you. There in Daniel 7.9, he says that the Ancient of Days had a vesture like white snow, and his hair was like pure wool, and his throne was ablaze with, bla- with flames, and its wheels were a burning fire. That's kind of in the same ballpark of what Jesus looks like right now. Think about what, what John the Apostle says in Revelation one thirteen and following where he, he talks about the glorified Jesus whose, hair, whose head and hair were white like white wool, like snow, and whose eyes were like a flame of fire and whose, whose sandals were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace and his, his voice was like the sound of many waters. There is an unearthliness about the glorified Jesus. There's a there's a otherworldliness. There's a transcendence about the glorified Jesus. John continues, in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. There are days where you go out and the sun is like hiding behind clouds. Maybe the sun feels like, ah, I don't want to really shine today. And then there are days you go out and you just feel your strength sapping by the second. That's the sun in its strength. That is the brightness. That is the magnitude of the light coming forth from Jesus. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Do you recall that the Apostle John has seen a few strange phenomena, a few supernatural things in his life, and he falls 
down like a dead man at the sight of the glorified Jesus. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, do not be afraid, kind of like he does at the end of our, verse, of our text today. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of hell. Beloved, that is the Jesus that the twelve had, have had all this time. That's the Jesus who has healed the sick. That's the Jesus who has given sight to the blind and restored limbs to the maimed. This is the Jesus who has cast out demons with a word. And when, when you read the description of the revelation Jesus, of the glorified Jesus, no wonder they were terrified of him. They saw him for who he was. This is the Jesus who commanded the sea and the winds to shut their mouths and got instantaneous results. This is the Jesus who can feed whole multitudes with a few loaves and a few fish. How can he do that? Because he's God. And now for a brief few moments, Peter, James, and John, they get to see this Jesus. Luke, Luke's account suggests that this happened at night, in which case the, the, the dark sky, just to, I mean, close your eyes and imagine Jesus radiating forth like a pillar, like a beacon of light. And the darkness of night is like a black velvet backdrop on which Jesus is the shining, sparkling jewel is shining forth. Oh, what I, would, what, I, what, what I would do if I could have seen that. Luke, again, comments in chapter 932 of his gospel that they had overcome with sleep. Remember that if they climbed up Mount Hermon, there's a good reason why they're exhausted. Well, they wake up to Jesus talking with two visitors. This leads to our third consideration today, the, the two prophets of glory, the prophets of glory in verses 4 through 6. Now, who, or why do these two distinguished, why do these two revered and honorable saints show up to talk to Jesus? Why do you think? Well, they are the main voices, they are the department heads, as it were, of, of the two divisions of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. And that is how the writers of the New Testament constantly refer to the Old Testament. Matthew 5.17, Jesus says, Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. Matthew 7.12, in, in everything, treat, therefore treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Matthew 11.13, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And there's other references in Matthew that said the same thing. And guess what? All of the Gospels phrase it like that as well. The law and the prophets are, comprise the totality of the Old Testament. And they're personified by Moses and Elijah. Moses, the writer of the first five books of the Old Testament. He is the law giver. He is the law founder. And he, turn back to Turn back to chapter 7, verse 10. should only be one page. Does Jesus say when he quotes the law, when he quotes the Old Testament, does he say, now Exodus 20 says, 
Now, what does he say? Moses said. Moses' sheer name was enough to be a reference or an allusion to the whole law. And then you have Elijah, the first of the great prophets. Elijah was understood as really as the department head of the prophets. And together they represent the entirety of the Old Testament. And it's as if with these two great men showing up, these two great men of God, it's as if the Old Testament is being personified and is standing before Jesus and is talking with him. It's as if the Old Testament is visiting with Jesus. Now, why do they show up? They show up because the disciples needed to see that their scriptures, their inspired Hebrew scriptures, their Bible, they needed to see that their Bible pointed to the fact that Messiah was going to suffer and be rejected and die just like Jesus said he would be. If you remember the disciples, and really the, 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 all the Jews in the land had a skewed understanding of Messiah. Their perception of what God's appointed redeemer, God's appointed deliverer was, what, what they thought he was didn't allow him to also be a suffering savior. He's supposed to be a conquering king. He can't be, a, he can't be this humble, mild, and meek suffering savior supposed to be the son of david but the truth is is that these men's scripture their scripture their hebrew old testament bible foretold all of the scandalizing details that the, the very things that are just composed the difficult to swallow pill the things that are just upsetting their whole world that Jesus, that the people aren't going to receive Jesus? They're actually going to make life hard for him? They're actually going to reject him? They're going to put him to death? Yeah, those things are in the Bible, or in the Old Testament scriptures. Now, I endeavored to try to lay some of these out to, to, to argue for that, and that is, beloved, that is a study all of its own. Let me give you some brief references. You can study these on your own the sin and trespass offerings in Leviticus 4 through 7. The day of atonement and and the very nature and the function of the tabernacle and the temple, Leviticus 16 and 23. Innumerable illusions and pictures in type and shadow of Jesus, such as Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22. David. The promise in Deuteronomy 17, the promise that God would send another prophet like Moses. You could say a second Moses who would have the very word of God in his mouth, on his tongue. And when he spoke, God would actually require accountability of anyone who didn't listen to him. Again, just a, just a survey, just a brief survey, but that could be a study all on its own. Isaiah 53, so all those other ones were for the, what the law said, the first five books. Isaiah 53, how do you get any clearer than that of the sufferings of Messiah? And there are numerous references in the minor prophets. But the point is, the Old Testament was essentially one giant Hebrew-inspired finger pointing to Jesus Christ and pointing to his work and his person, including his sufferings and his triumph. 
they point, the scriptures point to Jesus and they point to everything that comes with him. That includes his triumphant glory after the cross as well as the suffering that he needed to do to procure it, to purchase it, to obtain it. Now, uh, when you look at a verse like John 1.45, we, we get the sense that the disciples, like they expressed that they kind of got this early on, that the law and the prophets pointed to Jesus. John 1.45 says, we, uh, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. You, you'd think that they got this all the way from the beginning, but remember, remember the paradigm shift that they are just going through. All of the extra-biblical, all of the rabbinic traditions and, and rabbinic interpretations of the law that have overrided the plain sense of Scripture, all of that, has, it's, like the, it's like a theological etch-a-sketch that has to be shaken up and you've got to start over from scratch. Their world has been turned upside down. They need to be reminded that the Scriptures point to Jesus and the fullness of His work. Now, true to form, Mark doesn't give us any details about their conversation. I would have appreciated that, but Mark didn't see fit to give us that. Luke, on the other hand, helps a brother out. He tells us in 932, Moses and Elijah appeared and were speaking about his departure. Literally, his exodus, his way out. Well, what do you think that is? His death. They appeared to talk about what he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, why doesn't Mark help us out? Why doesn't Mark get into that details? Well, as we've touched on a number of times, Mark likes to abbreviate. Mark likes to get right to the important thing. And the important thing is going to be accomplished by a third testimony, by a, by a third witness. And that witness bears far more weight than even these two great prophets of God. But before, before we get to that point, there's a couple uh, things that I want to touch on concerning Peter's remark. Uh, you know, we, the last part of verse 6 tells us, I mean, what, 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 what emotional state were they in? Were they, were they happy? Were they, were they, oh, gee, Willikers, this is great. Jesus just lit up like the sun. <laughs> what, what, what is their emotional state at the end of verse Six. And are are they able to are they able to speak and cohesively? Are they able to think rightly and communicate that? No. No, and they don't know what to say. And that is Peter's cue to open his mouth. And he says, "Oh, this is great. This is good. Let's let's build three tabernacles: one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah." And there's three things that I, I'd like to address, that I'd like to correct with him. Three errors I want to point out. One is the error in his address. Now, when you compare the Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account, it's, 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 it, it appears that Peter is just throwing everything out. And one, uh, in Matthew, he calls him Lord. And in another, he calls him teacher. And here, he calls him rabbi. So he's probably just throwing everything out. But Mark, Mark records him saying, rabbi. Mark says Peter called him teacher. Where, beloved, where is that great God-given 
confession that we got back in chapter 8. You are the Christ. You are the Christ, the Son of God. Where, where, where is that? It, rabbi, at this point, seems a little underwhelming. I take issue with that. There's an error in his address. There's also an error in his, in his suggestion. Let's build three tabernacles. Why? What was a tabernacle? What? Yeah, ta- it's a tent. It's a, it's a dwelling place. It's a, it's a dwelling structure. And the, the fact that he wants to build tabernacles for these, for these three indicates that he wants them to stay. He wants Moses and Elijah to stay. See, Jesus is teaching that he's going to suffer and die. It is so repulsive to them, so scandalizing to Peter that he sees the arrival of these two great men of God, these great men who, who defied kings and delivered God's people despite incredible odds. You remember the 400 prophets of Baal? You remember the, the Exodus account? These men did great things. And with them being here, hey, maybe we could, you know, maybe we could put our heads together. We can come up with a plan. We can get Rome out of here. And if you do that, maybe the scribes and the Pharisees, maybe they won't hate you so much. And we can all have a good, happy ending. We just need to get, we just need to get them to stay. And then we'll work something out. So let's, let's build them, let's build them a, a lodging place. Let's build them a tent. So there's an error in his suggestion. There's also an error in his comparison. I want to build a tent for you and for Moses and for Elijah. Mark Mark points out, Mark lists Jesus as the only one who's transfigured. It's his clothes that are gleaming like a like a Zeppelin spotlight. It, he's the one who is lit up and shining like, like a living lightning bolt. And we know from Luke's account, Moses and Elijah are here to talk to Jesus about Jesus. They're not here to talk about themselves or what they're going to do. They're here to talk to Jesus about what Jesus is going to do. This whole conversation seems kind of Jesus-centric. And yet, Peter, speaking for the other two, they want all three of them to stay. Now, the presence of these two great prophets was supposed to encourage these three men, but what the, the, their appearance, their witness isn't enough. That these men need to hear a third. That should, that should trigger a little thing in your minds, the third witness. It means this whole thing, what, what is being witnessed to is verifiable, but they need a third witness who makes clear the purpose of this glorious glimpse. And that leads us to verses 7 and 8, the purpose of, of glory. What what happens now? Then then a cloud forms. Beloved, this isn't this isn't a little cute little nimbus cloud. I don't I don't I don't remember my science lessons. So I don't remember what other kind of clouds there were. But this isn't an ordinary I mean you you saw that picture of Mount Hermon. There there were clouds up there. There was fog and mist and other meteorological phenomenon up there, but this is a cloud that causes sheer and abject terror. What cloud in the in the body of Old Testament scripture does that? This is this is the 
visible expression of the one true God that you see throughout the Old Testament canon. This is the Shekinah glory. This is the great, radiant, glorious cloud that, if you remember, guided and protected Israel through the, through the wilderness, through the exodus. This is the cloud that dwelt inside the temple and then dwelt, in, well, first the tabernacle and then dwelt inside the temple and would later depart from the temple in Ezekiel's day when the people just couldn't get over their idolatry. And I believe, I can't prove this conclusively, but I think this was also the star that the Magi followed, the star that appeared in the east. But there can be no doubt that this cloud is the visibly manifested presence of God, the Father, because what does the cloud or the voice who comes from the cloud say? This is my beloved Son. Now, beloved, what I want you to think about, what I want you to see, because of some things that we've looked at in the last couple sermons and, and some things that we know from other portions of Scripture, I want you to consider the triune Christocentric emphasis from the Trinity. Now, what, what does that mean? Triune Christocentric emphasis. Triune. Each person of the divine Trinity is working in this endeavor. Christocentric, focused on Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit in John 15, 26, Jesus says concerning the Spirit, he will testify of me. And in the next chapter, 15, 14, he will glorify me. That is, that is the chief purpose of the Holy Spirit's ministry, to bring people to Jesus, to testify of Jesus to people, to glorify Jesus, to make Jesus look good. All of these obs, obs, Obscene things that you see of people allegedly doing things in the power of the Spirit that do nothing but make themselves, they think they're exalting themselves, they look foolish. That's not the Spirit. The, Spirit, the Spirit's ministry is to point people to Jesus. That's, that is, the, the, the Spirit has a Christocentric emphasis in his, in his ministry. Jesus himself has a Christocentric ministry. What did he just say? What was the third prerequisite? What was the third duty of a disciple? Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Yeah, Jesus draws people to Jesus. And then here you see the Father likewise leading people to Jesus. He says concerning his precious son, he says, he is well pleasing. And this implies, this, this tells us that everything about Jesus, everything he says, everything he is, everything he has done, everything he will do, his intentions, his plans, every single thing about Jesus is pleasing is good, is approved, is, is worthy in the estimation of God the Father. Everything about him, everything he said, and the way that he is working to procure my kingdom, his ideas about what Messiah is going to do to establish the kingdom of God, that's well-pleasing to me. Can you see the rebuke? 
for the 12 who are so offended, who are, who are still at this point scandalized that their Messiah must suffer and die? God the Father says his intentions about what he's going to do, everything about him is pleasing to me. Well, so what? So what's the application for a statement like that? Well, then people should listen to him. You should listen to him. I'm sure the disciples felt the finger going into them. You need to listen to him. This is a... This is a present tense imperative. What does that mean? That means present tense, keep on listening to him. Don't listen to him and stop. Those of, those of you who have children or husbands can probably attest to the fact that some of us are gifted in kind of hearing and only doing a little part of the thing, and then we kind of trail off. We, we try, but keep on hearing. Keep on listening. Persevere in your listening to Jesus. And it's an imperative. What does that mean? It means it's not a suggestion. It means, you know, I mean, considering who Jesus is, it's probably in your best interest. I would suggest, I would advise that you kind of maybe take what he says to heart and kind of maybe do what he says. No, finger finger in the chest. Listen to him. Do what he says. The first time we heard the Father's voice all the way back in Mark 1.10, it was a word of encouragement to Jesus. The Father said to Jesus, you are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Who was he speaking to? Jesus. He said those words to encourage Jesus. He was starting off his public ministry that would climax at the cross. Well, guess what? We are now just a matter of months away from the cross. Jesus hasn't changed his mind about what he's going to do. The the people whose opinions have changed are his disciples. They need to be reminded he is still the well-pleasing son to the Father. It's not for Jesus' benefit that that God speaks here. It's it's for the benefit of the three men. Ultimately, it would be for the benefit of the twelve and for for all disciples who would be given this report. Perpetually persevere, continue, keep on hearing his words. Don't stop. Don't stop hearing. In essence, he's saying, believe what he has to say. Take his words, chisel them into the stone of your heart. Take his words and build your lives on them as one who would build his house on a foundation. I seem to recall Jesus talking about, using an illustration like that in Matthew 7. And right now in his ministry to the 12, these words, these words that these men are so, that are so difficult for them to receive, that it's so easy for them to cast them aside and to, and to not receive them. These words are focused on the centrality, on the, centrality of the absolute necessity that Jesus needs to suffer and die. Listen to him. Beloved, there is a tone, there is a tone in the Father's voice that for Peter has to come across like something like, Peter, shut your mouth already. Listen 
to him. You haven't been. You need to start and then keep on listening to him. This whole scene is, a, is part rebuke, part correction for the disciples, but as I intimated when I started this message, it's also an encouragement. This, this transfiguration is a glimpse of Jesus' second coming, which, again, look back to chapter 838. So at that point, he's going to bring in his kingdom with him, with power. This glory, this, this weightiness, this, this awesomeness about Jesus is just a preview of what he's going to bring back. How is this to encourage the disciples? Well, this encourages the disciples by affirming to them that that the suffering and the rejection and the death of Jesus, the 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 all of these horrible things that is that is upsetting their minds, those are not going to hinder, those are not going to circumvent the plan of God. How often do we read something in Scripture and we think, well, that, how, can that, how can that work out in my life? How can that bear fruit in my life? How can that come true for me? Didn't these writers know that, that, that these things would come up that they had no idea? They needed to know that the Christ that was foretold in their Scriptures, that his suffering, that his rejection, that his death would not be circumvented by all of these horrible, horrible things. They needed to know, beloved, they needed to know that this Christ that they see right now before them, they needed to know this is their Savior. This sovereign, pure, radiant, glorified, God-pleasing man is the Christ. And he will suffer just like he said. He will be rejected just like he said. He will die just like he said. And then what's he going to do? Rise just like he said. He's going to rise at the point when most men don't rise. I mean, think about that. When most men stay down for the count, as in death, Jesus is going to get up and go, okay, now that that's over. And because he can do that, because he will do that, everything else that he said he will do, he will do. The suffering before Christ that, that these men are so terrified of will not circumvent, will not negate will not override or deter the plan of God. Oh, that we might have faith to believe that when God says he's going to do something, he's going to do it no matter what comes up in our lives. His promises will not return empty. And that this particularly means that Jesus will be there to rise up, to raise up every Disciple of his that the Father has given him in the last day. John 6, 44, one of my favorite verses. All who come to me, all who receive me, all that the Father gives to me, I myself will raise up in the last day. And you look at the fact that these two great saints, Moses and Elijah, the fact that they are standing there in this, for this brief moment clearly demonstrates to us that God is pretty good at not losing his saints. They seem, for, for dead men, well, 
Elijah was taken up in a chariot. But Moses died. For a dead man, he seems to be doing pretty well. The presence of Moses and Elijah clearly shows God is, is, a, is a God who is good at keeping his people. Now, as soon as the father speaks, Moses and Elijah are gone. Both of these distinguished visitors have returned to heaven. Verse 8. They look around and they see nobody anymore with them except Jesus alone. And that's fitting, beloved, because they don't need anybody else. Moses has done his job. In the law, he pointed to Jesus. He can step away. Elijah, in his prophetic ministry, pointed to Jesus. He's done his job. He can step away. They don't need Moses and Elijah anymore. They have the one whom they need. Let me close with two appeals. I want you to see that your life is safe with Christ. Colossians 3.3, your life, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. When he appears in glory, you too, will be, uh, you too will be revealed with him. Your life is safe with Christ. Secondly, because of that, listen to him and follow him. You know, I, I don't normally make these kind of applications, but... What is the Moses and the Elijah in your life? What, what are the things, Moses and Elijah, in context, uh, for them, representing all of this extra stuff that, according to their interpretations, were competing with who Jesus says he is, with, with what Jesus said he has come to do. What are the things that we have in our hearts and our minds that compete with the words of Jesus? Is it society? Is it, is it our friends and family? Is it our own flesh? What things need to be left aside? What things need to rescind and go away and give more room for Jesus? You can trust him with your life and he is a good Savior to follow and to trust. Let's pray. Well, thank you for.